Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Eric Klein. With me today is Jennifer Waits. And before we jump into the interview today with the author of the book, Preaching on Wax, the Phonograph and the Shaping of Modern African-American Religion by Lerone Martin, I want to share with you a piece of sound from an old phonograph. So it's scratchy and old. It's from the 20s, I believe. And it's of uh, Reverend James Gates preaching to his audience on the recording, on preaching on wax about the evils of shopping in corporate chain stores. Stay out of the chain store is the top. And then while they sing, I want you to listen. Then I want you to put it into action. Stay out of these chain stores. The time has come, as I've said to you before, uh, for you to patronize your merchants uh, in the town where you live. And to the country people that's out yonder, when you come to town, spend your money with people who uh, will give you credit. Spend your money with the people who uh, give you a job. Uh, I'm telling you this for your good. And I, boys, I want you to sing tonight as never before. Tell and me tell you people, Lord, both white and colored too. It's time for you to wake up, Lord, and see how they treat you. So again, that is the B-side of a 78 record that, according to today's guest on Radio Survivor, was never released, uh, possibly because it was uh, deemed, um, you know, non-commercial, not, not ready to be sold in stores, uh, criticizing the emergence of these uh, national chains during what was uh, basically the eve of the Great Depression in the United States. Today's episode and interview was produced by Jennifer Waits. Today we're speaking with Lerone Martin, the Associate Professor in Religion and Politics at the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics at Washington University in St. Louis. And today we're going to talk about preaching on wax. Lerone wrote a book, Preaching on Wax, The Phonograph and the Shaping of Modern African American Religion. And This is an aspect of audio history that I was completely unaware of. So, Lerone, can we just launch right in and have you talk about this fascinating research that you did into the early uses of phonograph records in the 20s through the early 40s to spread religious messages? And I'd love to know more about why records were such a huge tool for Black clergy during this time period. Sure. And first of all, thanks for for having me. What I tried to chronicle in the book Preaching on Wax was the phenomenon of African-American preachers signing record deals beginning in 1925 with major record labels to record and sell their sermons. This process began in 1925. It ended by 1941 because of the outbreak of World War II, and there was a cap and a limit put on certain types of production materials, particularly shellac, which is what early records were made of. Um, And it picks up again after the war um, with um, preachers recording again on wax uh, beginning after the war in 1945 and until vinyl and records sort of uh, lost their way to uh, eight tracks and cassette tapes. The process over 1925 and 1941, um, about 100 African-American preachers signed record deals with labels such as First Columbia, then Paramount Records, and then um, some of the smaller labels, OK Records, and then even some of the chain store labels such as Montgomery Ward, of course, the, the largest one would have been Victor, which was later Victor RCA, and their chain store label, which was called Bluebird, uh, as well as uh, other chain stores also um, had record labels. So it was a pretty large phenomenon. And some of these records sold as much or more as some of the uh, popular blues singers of the day. They were often featured and sold alongside the likes of Bessie Smith. Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, they were sold on the same record labels and at times outsold some of those folks. That's um, amazing. From what we, 
Yeah, it's it's a pretty pretty uh, amazing phenomenon. But from what we can tell, the record labels uh, in the early um, pre-war era didn't keep track of record sales the way that we have today with SoundScan and other organizations like that. But one way you can tell about sales if you through the record label archives, you can in the catalogs you can tell about how many records of a certain sermon or song were ordered, and if there was a supplemental order. That gives you a key about the popularity. And so there's uh, at times the, the sermon that probably sold the most was a sermon by the of a preacher out of Kansas City named uh, J.C. Burnett. Um, and it was called The Downfall of Nebuchadnezzar. And that sermon had um, orders of up to close to 90,000 uh, records that, that Columbia Records placed several orders for the record because it was apparently selling well. And these songs, um, these tracks on records, uh, was the downfall of Nebuchadnezzar by J.C. Burnett. Was that a musical sermon or was it straight speech? So what J- what J.C. Burnett and Reverend Gates do is that they do bring in um, call and response. And so when you, when you listen to the sermon, you'll get a chance to hear people singing in the background or you'll hear people saying, ch- chanting, amen, preach, or that's right. And so you get more of a, essentially a, a recording of a evangelical expressive worship service all on wax. And so what those folks did was to sort of recreate the church moment. Now the early, early uh, period, 1925 is the first sermon. Those sermons are recorded in the very state, the very, more of a lecture style sermon. Hmm. The popularity kicks off when the sermons are more expressive and sort of recreate an African-American expressive worship service all on wax. That's and where were they re- were they recorded in the field, you know, in in churches, or were preachers brought into the studio to record, you know, kind of a canned sermon? In the early days, in the beginning, 1925, um, the first preacher um, he goes Calvin Dixon is his name, and he's out of uh, Norfolk, Virginia. He preaches a sermon called "An Eagle Stirreth Her Nest." And he, um, Columbia hears about him, a local record town, a local record dealer and a talent scout sees his popularity. He's established his own small uh, church network. He travels to New York and records in Columbia studios. And that's during the days of acoustic recording where you had a, a horn connected to a stylus that would, you would speak into the horn and the stylus would etch the, you know, the vibrations into wax. And that's how the, records were made. When Westinghouse Electric develops the modern microphone, it then allows record labels to actually go out in the field with microphones and actually be able to record folks on site. So there are some sermons from the most popular preacher of the day, Reverend James Gates, who is recorded um, in his church in Atlanta, Georgia. They have the microphone set up, and this also allows them to bring in other people, other voices, so that you can actually hear someone saying amen or hallelujah or preach or that's right. You can hear them, and the record label was able to to adjust the volume and the pitch of those voices as opposed to the acoustic days where the best way that they could uh, make adjustments of this way was to just basically move a person further away from from, from the from the from the horn in which a person would speak into. Yeah, those must be really different feeling records. You know, the one done in the studio with the preachers just standing there very close to the device versus being in the church. Uh, Correct. Must be interesting as a researcher to hear how how that changed. It is very interesting because um, it doesn't feel, the, the ones with the microphones and the call and response it does feel more, it does transport you more as if you are there. There's one newspaper article I found when a a preacher in New Jersey is adjusting to this phenomenon. And he says that one of his church members um, is not coming to church anymore, but instead is staying at home and listening to records by Reverend James Gates. And he says, you know, I can't understand how someone who is preaching a sermon a thousand miles away 
is causing my church member to have religious experience, you know, thousands wow. of miles away. So there is a, in the 20s, you know, this is a real phenomenon that people can finally hear a sermon in a very, very expressive style and never have to leave their home. This is a real phenomenon for folks. So you're also, you're talking about the period when radio is beginning as well. So tell us why radio wasn't an outlet because that that could have been an opportunity to hear a sermon live a thousand miles away with you know a powerful AM transmitter. So why was that less likely for this group of preachers? There's a couple of reasons I would say. The first is um, part of this is of uh, aspect of racial discrimination. African American preachers have a difficult time in the twenties getting on the radio. Um, as you know, a, a lot of radio in the early days is sponsored by corporations. And so there are many corporations who are concerned with if they're sponsoring the, the ex-corporation radio hour. There's some concern from corporate executives about having their product and their corporation too closely aligned with African-Americans. So there's some concern about uh, having African-Americans linked to uh, corporate radio. The other is just the way in which radio, um, the spike in radio uh, ownership across the country. African-Americans lag behind white Americans in having radio sets in their homes. Part of that is due to electricity. The African-American population during the 20s is going through a major migration, leaving rural America, particularly the rural South, and moving to urban America, where they'll have more access to um, electricity and for radio, but that's a very, very staggered um, experience. Another reason is um, also because of the way that mainline churches in America, for the most part, dominate religious radio in America. And by mainline, I mean established Presbyterian, established Baptist, Episcopalian organizations, or excuse me, denominations of this nature. What evangelical white preachers who are not connected to these established denominations, if they want to get on to radio, they have to pay to get on. Whereas established preachers such as Henry Emerson Fosdick, who is at Riverside Church, the famous Riverside Church in New York, he gets free time to be on the radio because mm. he's part of an established religious denomination. And is, is, that, a, is that a white a, preacher or is, was that also an African yes, American preacher? Okay. He's a white preacher. And primarily the mainline denominations, they didn't rotate a lot of, they didn't have, they had a sort of a circle of folks who were approved to get on religious radio. It was thought they came together and came up with the terms that there would be no controversial subjects, but since radio was sort of a public utility, that it should be used to uplift local communities. So there were inspirational messages, but nothing controversial nothing about the theological distinctiveness of these organizations. But evangelical preachers by the name, like for the likes of Amy Simple McPherson, who was out in California at the Foursquare Gospel Church, uh, Angelus Temple, folks of that nature, they actually had to pay to get on the radio, pay commercial time. Hmm. So part of what happens early on is that they are preaching on radio, but they're also asking for donations so they can stay on radio. So with African-Americans, to put all of this sort of set in front of them, um, it's difficult for African-American preachers to get on radio. On the phonograph side, it's a wonderful opportunity on the phonograph side, because as the phonograph trade and industry begins losing money to, to, to the radio, people are bu- buying radio sets and phonograph companies are not um, are losing, losing sales. Um, they look to African-Americans to bolster um, their their bottom line. And that began in 1920 with the advent of modern um, blues being recorded on the radio with the likes of Mamie Smith and others. That was the first black blues record recorded in 1920. And then from there, the, the photograph industry really begins to focus and concentrate on a new aspect of the market, and that's the African American uh, community. Oh, that's the voice of so, yeah. That's sorry, Jennifer. That's the voice of Larone Martin, associate professor at Washington University in St. Louis, and we're talking today on Radio Survivor about his book, Preaching on Wax, from New York University Press, 2014. 
which is about uh, the phonograph and the shaping of modern African-American religion. And Lerone Martin, you just described this idea that radio in the 20s was was taking away revenue from the phonograph industry. So they turned to the African-American audience, which was being denied access to the radio. So the phonograph industry starts to try to um, sell more records to African-Americans, which leads to... <laughs> which does that is that why American music is what American music is because of this focus on on that audience? I think so. I mean, we do see um, you know jazz, which you know most music historians say is sort of the original music of the American experience that was invented here in the U.S. right and exported around the world, and blues as well. I do think that is part of the, the beginning of. American popular music being primarily associated with the African American uh, cultural culture, African American cultural expression. I do think that is the beginnings of that because now we could arguably say America's music that we've you know exported around the world. We could argue you know is hip hop. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that is sort of the music that no matter where you are. I was watching a television show the other day. It was um, I think it was one of those competition shows. It was a dance competition. And there were so many hip hop groups, hip hop dance groups competing, but they were from all over the world. And it was just fascinating to see from Taiwan to the Philippines, to Japan, to Amsterdam, all these group, different hip hop dance groups. And all of them, you know, they look like you would never know from their style of dance that they're not from the U.S. And so it's, it's quite a phenomenon the way that African-American music and cultural expression is going around the globe. As you mentioned, hip hop, uh, you know, I've also heard that, um, you know, these early preacher records that we're talking about, that that you can show linkages between that and and rap and hip hop culture, too. Uh, you know, as long as we're on that topic, maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Sure. I, I think that there is a there is a connection between when we talk about the African-American uh, sermon by that meaning the the chanted sermon the sermon that is preached to a rhythm rhythm and cadence that involves a call and a response that experience um, has deep connections and deep roots to uh, cultural expression in West Africa which is brought over by enslaved Africans and continues within the U.S. and has adapted to uh, the U.S. milieu. And then um, we see the connection with even with 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 hip hop and with rappers who are able to tell us tell you a story about whether their life or a fable or a story that is has a, a a meaning to it, and all of that is done to the pace and the rhythm of bass and drum, and there's often a call and response, whether it's um, a group or whether it's the audience you get a sort of a talking back and forth. And that is all very much so connected um, to the African-American chanted sermon. Yeah, it's amazing to get this history and also sort of back to the economics, tying it back to radio, that the economics of of radio had an impact, that radio had an impact on the record industry. So you talked about how some of these records from from these African-American preachers ended up outselling a lot of other types of records. Did that in turn lead to airplay on the radio? I'm curious. You know, that's a great question. Um, we, we do start getting African-American preachers buying up time, especially in urban enclaves like Chicago, beginning in the 30s. Hmm. Um, there, are, there are preachers. Um, Elder Lucy Smith has a popular radio show in Chicago. And she ends up buying time. And typically, because of the setup of radio, the commercial time was actually prime time that could be bought. So Elder Lucy Smith would be preaching or broadcasting her services from Chicago during a prime time moment where audiences could hear it. The free time or the sustaining time of radio that was given away was often at a time when no one else was listening. Right? It was the time the radio station knew would have low, low, low viewership, maybe, um, and they would give it to a way to a local preacher, typically a, a white American preacher, um, for free time. So we do get African-American preachers in places like Chicago um, getting on the radio and in Detroit. Um, but I, I don't have any um, evidence 
in the book of phonograph preachers getting their sermons played on the radio. The only evidence I found was a young man wrote into a newspaper saying that he had heard Reverend James Gates, the popular phonograph preacher, preaching on the phonograph and on the radio. That was the only thing he wrote in saying how much he enjoyed um, enjoyed it. So I don't have, I don't know if that means Reverend Gates was at a radio show. I don't think he did. So I am led to believe that maybe perhaps there are some local radio stations that are playing these sermons, even if it's just something that's paid for by Columbia Records, right? Where Columbia Records may go to a local radio DJ and say, hey, play this record. And then say, you know, if you want to hear more, uh, head on down to head on down to Steve's, you know, record shop where you can buy more. And of course, um, these sermons were also sold via um, mail-in, via mail-in catalogs. So Columbia and Paramount would also distribute, um, and also in newspapers, there'd be these order forms where you could say, you know, I want to, I want to buy this sermon and this sermon and this sermon, and that was a day, of course, upon. Uh, COD cash on delivery when you would pay the oh, mailman yeah. when you would, <laughs> you would bring your records to your house. And so the, there are newspapers that are littered with these advertisements where you can order sermons by mail order. So all that to say, I think it is a possibility that Columbia or Paramount would have reached out to local radio stations and said, "Hey, play this record so we can have it." And of course, these records they're not just. They're not just words. A lot of times, I mean, you you referenced uh, Reverend J. M. Gates, and and th- these are songs. These sermons on records sound to me like like gospel music. So it makes sense that they'd be played on the radio because they're extremely lyrical and have a melody. Yes, a level a number of them do, um, and they, we're dealing with seventy eights. So we're talking about three and a half minutes on each side of the record. So we're talking about a record that only has about seven minutes. And so some of these, some of these uh, uh, preachers will do is you'll have one side of the record, which will be a song, almost as like a devotional service. Then you flip the record over and then you'll have a sermon on the other side. So you kind of get an encapsulated, abbreviated worship service all in about seven minutes. Oh yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And what Pentecostal preachers do um, they really bring in other types of instrumentation. So mm-hmm. James Gates is a, ba- is, a, is a Baptist. Primarily what you're going to get from James Gates, if any music at all, is going to be the piano. Because a lot of Baptists in the, 20th, in the 20s, they thought instruments such as trombone and the drums and trumpet, that those were sort of secular huh. instruments that were not used for worship. What Pentecostal preachers do, and particularly a gentleman by the name of Reverend F.W. McGee, he brings in um, horns and trumpets and drums. And you can hear some of that on Reverend F.W. McGee's sermons, who was a Pentecostal preacher who later after World War II got on the radio. Cast him overboard! And the Lord had prepared a great fish. And they cast him over. And the ship swallowed him up. And where where was F.W. McGee, Reverend F.W. McGee? He planted a church in Chicago. And so he he tells his story in an interview that he starts off by just having worship services on the street. And so he's using, he's getting local jazz musicians and getting them to play for him on the street corner to sort of drum up attention. And as he gets attention and gets popularity, the church grows and he establishes a church in Chicago. A local talent scout uh, hears about him and ends up signing him to a record deal. And he records a number of sermons for um, several different labels. So what was it like for some of these preachers when they got these major record deals and had massive sales, how did that change the nature of their congregation? That's a great question. One of the things that I chronicle in the book is the rise of commercial celebrity among preachers. I think that um, what preaching on wax does for some of these preachers is that 
it makes them, it turns them into commercial celebrities. All of a sudden, you're opening up your newspaper and your local preacher now is being advertised or spoken about alongside Louis Armstrong and, and Duke Ellington. So he is no longer just the local preacher from my neighborhood. He is now a commercial celebrity and he's mm-hmm. known for selling products. These preachers, um, from everything I've been able to research and tell in the book, most of them all settled for, and Bessie Smith as well, some of the, some of the label mates on the same labels, a lot of these preachers settled for flat rate payments and they would negotiate how much money they would be paid per title that they would record. Some who were smart or who, who figured out that there was a thing called royalties. Some, some of these artists didn't realize that royalties existed. Um, so some of them would, 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 would um, get royalty contracts. So the sermons we're talking about are at the time in the 20s, about 75 cents. And so we're talking about roughly, we could say that would be about 25 to $30 today out of an average income today. So it's a nice, it's pretty pricey um, item. And you think about people who are maybe in the 20s working for a dollar a day, and there's a sermon that costs 75 cents. Wow. So there's all types of stories of people saving up and, you know, when they get their paycheck, they go to the record store to buy a bunch of records. So preachers typically out of that 75 cents, if they were smart enough and Betsy Smith and others, if they were informed enough, they could garner about a one to two cents um, poor royalty per record sold. But again, this was very difficult to keep track of because record companies didn't really publicize record sales. Um, so this was difficult to keep track of, but if they were able to get any of that money, they could get roughly, um, again, one cent to two cent per, per record sale, which doesn't sound like a lot, but when you think about today with streaming services, that's, that's actually more than what most artists get when they're, when their songs are streamed on local streaming service. That's a 1920s penny, not a 2019 penny. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, Lerone Martin, uh, author of the book Preaching on Wax, The Phonograph, and The Modern African-American Religion. You just referenced Bessie Smith. Bessie was one of the most well-known blues singers. And it's just funny because when you look at the studio logs, you know, you imagine Bessie Smith. And we all know Bessie. You know, she, 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 loved, she loved the party. She smoked. She drank. She challenged gender norms. She challenged norms about sexuality. And you look at the studio log and you think about her and Louis Armstrong talks about, you know, being in the studio with her. She always kept her cash money on her. She wore overalls underneath almost every dress she ever wore. You think about them drinking and smoking. Exactly. Pockets drinking and smoking in the studio. And then the next person in the studio will be some preacher who comes in. (laughs) And you just think about how that might even be influencing these preachers when they get in the studio and they, can smell the smoke and they know that there's been alcohol in the room and um, in, in the day of pro, in the day of prohibition and then they go in and preach a sermon and i think a lot of that probably gave a lot of energy to these preachers about right what's 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 the problem what's what's ailing america yeah today? who's who is the audience and it's it's bessie smith's audience that they're <laughs> exactly 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 so they're dealing with the same label dealing with the same record executives who, of course, as you can imagine, the, the record executives, um, a man by the name of Polk Brockman, is the man who um, is credited with discovering James Gates. Um, Polk Brockman, you know, he's not concerned with whether or not James Gates has good theology. He's not concerned about whether or not uh, people are go- join, going, going to church. What Polk Brockman and Columbia Records are concerned about is whether or not this is going to sell. And so it's a really convergence of, of course, a business acumen as well as these preachers who feel like this is an opportunity for them to exact a challenge to the kind of morals that they feel that Bessie Smith is um, putting forth and professing in popular life. And they're out, they're both selling lots of records. So is it the same audience who's consuming, you know, the, the sermons as well as the licentious jazz and blues? I think so. Uh, I think that, you know, um, I, it's hard for me to 
get exact access on consumers, but I think everything that we know about the sacred and the secular in American life, um, I think we can safely say that, you know, the Saturday night nightclub uh, person is on Sunday morning, right? Um, either in church or is at home or is listening to these sermons. All the current data we have today, for example, on televangelism, is that um, people are often using these uh, commodified sermons to supplement their lives in addition to other activities that they're doing. And that includes going to the nightclub or the juke joint, or, you know, it includes your local faith community. So these sermons, I think the best way we could think of them is something that's supplementing um, a person's life, which includes, quote unquote, secular interest and sacred yeah, interest. Because I'm, I mean, we're talking about religious records that for a secular, I mean, I, I it's, it's, I want to talk about the religious audience for these. And I think we have a little bit, especially the African-American um, re- religious audience. But I also imagine that there's just a secular audience that's excited about um, the sounds and how this is basically the, the beginnings of African-American gospel music. And it's, it's really fun to listen to. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right about that. I think it's, it's great fun um, to listen to. And also it gives you a chance to see, you know, what are people concerned about in the 1920s you know what is what is this america is vastly changing right automobiles are, automobile sales are spiking people are driving people are moving to urban cities prohibition um i think it's exciting to listen to them both for that but as a historian i'm excited about what it tells me about the moment in the 1920s and what people are concerned about um, but i think you're absolutely right i think that in terms of the um, people who buy these records, I think there's probably, you know, no difference. You're going to get everybody who may just enjoy them yeah. um, at home and for the sound and for aesthetic of, of appeal. Can you tell us a little bit about one track in particular, one song that you, know, you were just referencing, the massive change that's going on in the United States uh, for everybody, but also for African-Americans in the United States in the 20s? Like what, what's one uh, record that, that speaks to you on that message? I think one record would be, um, I'll give, can I give you two? Can I cheat and give you two? Uh, <laughs> yeah, of course. We, we'll take them all. Um, <laughs> one, one record would be that really gets at this is Reverend James Gates has a record called Hellbound Express Train. Uh-huh. Nice. And, and he uses, obviously, the, the major mode of travel, commercial travel in America, right, for most Americans is, is, is the train. And so he uses this metaphor of the train. Think about people hopping on the train from rural areas and flooding into Chicago and Detroit and all the Cleveland, all these other cities, Los Angeles. In New Orleans, I'm getting on. I'm from Beals, speaking Memphis, Tennessee. I'm getting on board. From 18, speak Birmingham, Alabama. Oh, glory to God. Sleep finger gambler is getting on board. I'm from Decatur, speak Atlanta, John. Glory to God. And he uses that Hellbound Express train, he uses that metaphor as a warning. Like the people coming into urban America and 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 being bound for hell, right? So he uses this metaphor. It's a chanted sermon. You hear the audience saying, Amen, preach it. And he's saying all the different places the hellbound express train is going to stop, right? It's going to stop at, you know, Gambler's Row and it's gonna stop on Decatur Street in Atlanta. And he starts naming uh, different places across the country where the Hellbound Express train stops. So wow. that's one of my <laughs> one of my favorites. Another one is by um, a, a preacher, one of the few women who actually had a great deal of success. A number of women recorded, but very few were as successful as a woman by the name of Lee Ora Ross, Reverend Lee Ora Ross, who looks like she migrated to to Cincinnati, Ohio, from the rural South. And Leora's special because it's uh, one of the records that features nothing but women. And Leora's special because it's uh, one of the records that features nothing but women. So it's Reverend Leora Ross, 
First of all, she calls herself reverend, which many denominations at the time would not recognize a woman preacher as a reverend. And Reverend Leora Ross has a group of women singing in the background of her sermons. And one of the sermons that she has is called um, uh, Ezekiel and the Dry Bones in the Valley. She uses the story of Ezekiel and the Bible and the dry bones, and she sort of makes reference in some ways to urban America and urban America being this kind of dry valley that um, Americans would need to be saved. Right, by God in a similar way that Ezekiel has this vision of being in the dry bones in a valley. That's one of my other favorite ones. And the, the, the newspaper advertisement is phenomenal because the, the newspaper, the marketing department decides, and this is 1927, decides to put a woman in a valley and it looks, she's got the bob haircut. She, I mean, she looks exactly like a flapper. She's got a form-fitting dress on and a bobbed haircut. And she's in this valley of these dry bones. And there's a feminine angel coming out of the sky to rescue her. And that's what the advertisement to, to sell the record. Wow. And, and now that you're talking, this is something I wanted to talk about, was the role of women, the role of female preachers in this era. And as one would guess, it sounds like they were marginalized. So maybe you could talk a bit more about the role that women played in, in the African-American preacher community and uh, especially on wax. Yeah, uh, there's a number of women I counted from looking through all the data. I counted about roughly about 15 women that looks like they recorded. And Reverend Leora Ross was the only one who was ever was invited, well, whoever returned to the studio. Mm. Ordinarily, if a preacher was successful and sold, um, like thinking about a smaller American population, if uh, any recording artist, blues, no matter what it was, if they recorded and sold over 3,000 records, it was likely that they would be invited back. So it looks like um, she's the only one who returned to the studio. So that has led me to believe that she's the only one who had a decent uh, experience on the marketplace in terms of selling records. And... The other woman may have been invited back that I, that I don't have any, any data on, but they didn't return. And given what a advancement in technology that this was, the opportunity it afforded preachers to reach a broader audience, I would think that if these, these women were invited back, they probably would have said yes. But she's the only one who gets in, who has multiple studio sessions. So I'm, I'm led to believe that she was one of the, probably the only woman who's had a decent amount of uh, of consumers purchase her sermons. And how, how common were female preachers in African-American churches at that in that time period? We're talking about the 20s through the early 40s. Um, mostly in Pentecostal um, denominations. Um, so that would be the, a lot of these independent Pentecostal groups. Reverend Leora Ross comes out of the Church of the Living God. And these Pentecostal organizations allow women to preach Primarily because in Pentecostalism, it's not about, you know, um, your, necessarily about your education, um, your qualification to preach. It's not about whether or not you've gone to seminary. It's about if you've had an experience, which they would identify with the Spirit of God, and you've had an experience with God. And that doesn't matter if you're male or female, educated or not. God will give you the ability. And so mm -hmm. Reverend Leonora Ross is part of a growing number of African-American freestanding and Pentecostal denominations and holiness denominations that allow women to preach. Now, African-American Baptists, African-American Presbyterians, they're a little slower on ordaining women, but Pentecostal, Pentecostal groups and holy, holiness groups really, really um, are on the forefront of uh, changing those norms in the 20s. And it's interesting when I think about celebrity preachers, even you know, in my lifetime, televangelists. Uh, I, I can't think of many female celebrity preachers, you know, in mass media. So, am I incorrect? Am I not looking closely enough? Well, the one that stands out the most is Amy Simple McPherson, and she's on the radio in the twenties, 
and she's in LA and Amy really takes on the kind of Hollywood mystique. I mean, everything from the bobbed hair, she wears fur, fox fur coats. And Amy Simple McPherson is the towering radio preacher of the era, um, male or female, yeah. black and, or white. And yeah, that's a, that's a white woman preacher. Yes. Amy Simple McPherson, and she's white. And so she is the towering radio figure in many ways out in California, in L.A., establishes her own denomination. Yeah, very L.A. Um, story, right? Yeah, and even even L.A. story to the point where she even, you know, um, most historians agree she faked her own kidnapping um, wow. <laughs> as a way as a way to as a way to steal some time away, which was probably because she was having a relationship with a married man, is what many people believe. Wow. And but yeah. she claims she claims she was kidnapped. It's actually people thought she was dead, and then she sort of showed up wow. um, sometime and later. Of course, she we're, was kidnapped. we're talking to you today, Lerone Martin, on on the radio survivor. So tell us a little more about Amy Semple McPherson's radio empire. Amy decides very early on that she needs to take, like a lot of more evangelical preachers do, that she needs to take on whatever the popular entertainment mediums of the day are that she feels that are of the world and leading people astray, that she needs to replicate those in a, in a sanctified way, in a religious way. So Amy's popularity is that she has what she calls these animated sermons. And where she, in person, if you would see her, she would dress up in a costume one famous one she rode in on the sanctuary on a motorcycle and a police and a policeman's outfit and said, you know, stop, I'm arresting you in the name of the Lord. Whoa, and right? that's wow. that's no small get up for a woman in the twenties. No small get up. And so if you're listening to this on the radio, right, she broadcasts live on her own radio station. If you're listening to this on the radio, right, it's a, it sounds a lot like serial radio shows of the day wow. right where you have someone who's dressed up in a costume and have someone who's you know making sounds or revving up an engine it sounds a lot like a radio serial of the day and that's what helps to contribute to amy's popularity is that amy is excellent at providing entertainment her church is built it's kind of like a playhouse with this large dome it's called angelus temple it's still in existence today and as you mentioned, she has her own radio station, so that has got to help. It, did she have the station before? What was the trajectory of her her preaching versus owning the radio station? Um, I think she starts off on local radio and just becomes so and so popular. Um, Amy decides to branch out on her own wow. and get her own radio station, and, and gets in trouble several times with the what would later become the um, Federal Communications uh, Commission. Um, because at the time, I think it's called the Radio Radio Communication Commission, because she keeps uh, broadcasting and upping her signal strength. Wow. And, <laughs> and so she's broadcasting as broadly as possible. And there's a funny exchange she has, you know, and she writes a telegram to the U.S. government, like basically tell your demonic minions that they can't stop the gospel <laughs> over the airwaves. Yeah, she's, wow. she's pretty... It's well, that's, pretty amazing. That's that's great. We're we're talking about preaching on the radio today with our guest Lerone Martin, who is a professor at Washington University in St. Louis. And it's funny to talk about Amy Semple McPherson there in LA, who had a massive presence, we're learning, on the radio in the twenties. And to contrast that with with African American preachers in the twenties, who we've learned from our guest today, did not have much a presence at all on the radio and and then um, were channeled into uh, communicating with their audience via via phonograph, via record, and sold a lot of records. Yes, it's, it's, it was a fun, fun, fun project to research. And I think that one of the things that, that I feel like um, this, we can learn from this moment is it can help us to think about our current moment and how we still see today preachers um, who are attempting to mimic and copy whatever popular entertainment is out there and then to replicate what they see as a more Christian or moral framework. That goes from amusement parks to television shows. There, you know, the whole line of 
the real real housewives of New York and LA, Atlanta, you know, there was a, a, a they launched a real preachers of LA, a real preachers of Detroit. Um, so this this continues. And I think that the dilemma is many of these preachers feel like this is the best way to remain relevant, to show that religion is still relevant to a broader audience. But one of the perils of it is having what type of relationship will one have with the marketplace and how that will amplify their voice but in some ways limited it as well. Mm. Um, a story that I try to I tell in the book, that for example, this is Reverend James Gates. He preaches a sermon in 1929 against chain stores. Um, this is as the, uh, the uh, market is, excuse me, 1930, the market is collapsing um, because of the Great Depression. And he preaches a sermon saying how chain stores are bad for local communities. Wow, um, ahead of his time. And it's ahead of his time. And there is all types of talk about it in the Harvard Business Journal about the rise of chain stores in America. The chain stores took over in the 20s. We're talking about the old A&P grocery stores, the emergence of Sears, J.C. Penney's, Montgomery Ward. So he preaches a sermon about this and he tries to do it like a radio skit. He tries to do it um, where he, he says he makes a claim the radio store or the chain stores ruining our local communities they don't pay for anything they send their money to wall street and then he has people who are presumably in the congregation who say yes preacher you're right i had a job working for a local mom and pop shop delivering groceries for them and they were put out of business because of the chain store and so that's the first part you flip the sermon over on the other part it's a song a quartet that puts the the sermon to song Mm in an old-school acapella quartet. Now, the dilemma for Reverend James Gates is that he's critiquing the chain store, but most of his sermons are sold in chain stores. Yes, yeah. Right. And that's the major outlet for him. And so when you look at the radio catalog, um, the record catalog, OK Records, which is a subsidiary of Columbia Records, they never put the sermon on in, in the marketplace. They uh-huh. never issue it. It's, it's recorded, but they never release it. It's never released. The Great Depression happens, and there's a gap in recording. Most record companies are just reissuing stuff that they've already recorded in the, uh, previously. When the recording picks up in 33, 34 for preachers, Reverend Gates is almost exclusively recording for chain store labels. Mm. Wow, and that's and so why I think that it's a, it provides a lesson for about for preachers today to even if they want to think about the role of religion in the marketplace. What are the, some of the, the dilemmas and some of the limits, as well as possibilities of this experience? Wow. Right. And that's a story from your book, Lerone Martin, uh, Preaching on Wax, The Phonograph, and the Shaping of Modern African-American Religion. And so does this continue today? Do you see, are there preachers who record sermons and sell them on CD or even vinyl today or cassettes or, or, or podcasts? possibly podcasting, yeah. Yeah. Yes, definitely podcasting. I think, you know, what's who's considered the probably the most popular preacher um, would be Reverend Joel Olstein, who has a show, he broadcasts his, 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 uh, his church services on television on Sunday. He has these evenings with Joel seminars that attract thousands of people across the country. And Joel's message is all about um, living your best life. He's a New York Times bestseller. It's always about living your best life. He's got the titles of his books are things like Every Day a Friday. He's got a lot of popularity and appeal. And obviously, you know, his books are being sold everywhere. It'd be difficult for Joel at this moment, right? If he were to say, I think Walmart should do X, Y, and Z. It'd be a very challenging thing for Joel to come out and say that, especially if it's a criticism of Walmart or a criticism of of any major corporation, given the fact of how tied he is to these major corporations. It depends on them for his popularity and for, for his message to be sent out to people. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about the economics of it. What about, I don't know if you can speak to this, but, you know, are there more underground, under the radar preachers who who might be you know, distributing things in more homespun ways, like, you know, we just mentioned podcasting or burning their own CDs. We had a recent episode of Radio Survivor where we talked about 
a radio station that didn't have a radio signal. And so they got around that by burning CDs of their content and distributing it to local buses. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, that was in Zimbabwe. Right, where it's very difficult, if not impossible, because they don't have community radio licenses right now. Yeah, going through a massive political transition as well, which is not without peril. And so this idea that these stations uh, were broadcasting their content in on the buses, sort of a like a um, like an underground radio station, was it really uh, it really sparked the imagination for Jennifer and I? Yeah, so that would be the flip side because we're hearing about some of these folks who who got major record deals and fame. But do you know much about people uh, who are more independent and underground? Yeah, um, I think most churches, including the faith communities in which I was raised in. Most of them, the sermons are recorded and they are sold right after service. Mm. And ah. now, and, 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 you know, the, the CDs are made very quickly and then reproduced and copied very quickly and it can be purchased right after service. Same day. And then a lot of other churches, as you said, are um, just do things via podcast where they'll, they'll put a podcast up of the worship service for those people who may are not able to make it to their church, maybe live too far away, maybe they're having health health difficulties. Mm-hmm. So the sermons will be put on the church website and it can be listened to and some churches even watched. So this certainly does happen through most churches. Most churches, no matter what size today, feel as if that that's almost uh, a must that you have to engage social media and communication technology if you're going to survive because that's where people are. People are on their phones and on their computers. And so if you want to reach people, you've got to you know, go to where they are. Um, so that definitely does happen. And then, but you've got to select few who get you know, major fame. And I think that their influence is that what they do is put out in lights and seem so large and big and successful that others then try to mimic that and copy that in order to get the same measure of success. I love that churches are are recording, as you mentioned, on CD and, and making that available right after the service. I, I'm just thinking from a historian's perspective, how amazing it is that that services are being archived in this way. And for future researchers, you know, look at all the material that they could potentially have if if the CDs are preserved or digitized in time. I agree. I think that's one of the ch- that's one of the challenges. So the phonograph. You can buy. You can still buy these records, right? Some you can go on these online auctions. I have some. Mm-hmm. They're they're they tough like frisbees. They're like this shellac that actually you know can break before after the war and vinyl becomes popular and it's more a synthetic wax and it's flexible. Radio's challenging because sometimes, as you all know, right? You have these radio broadcasts, but sometimes they were some of them were never recorded, and so you don't have ability to always listen to the same amount of information. Yeah. I think what we're experiencing now is the, the boom in communication technology. And now I think historians who formerly faced a dearth of material, right, not having enough material, I think we're moving in a different direction of communication technology. The historians are going to be overwhelmed and inundated with material, um, yeah. especially as it relates to sound and how historians deal with that, how uh, enthusiasts, how, you know, uh, consumers, how we deal with that. I think we're going to have to have other tools to help us sift through this data. Um, yeah. And I think that that's the direction we're moving in because we're getting inundated with data as opposed to not having enough. On that note, the idea that in 2019, there's too much recorded information, there's too much sound to sift through. Let's go back to the 40s. Let's go back to the 1930s where we're talking about African-American preachers using using records to both uh, make a living at what they do, but also to spread their messages. I guess I'm still interested. I'm so interested in the idea, uh, Lerone Martin, of um, what those messages were, especially as the medium gained in popularity, right? If there was a commercial aspect to their success, did that change what was or what the original purpose of the message? Yeah. So beginning, the beginning is mostly, as I've said, are mostly sermons about moral piety. Um, how do you move to the city and remain holy and pious or being careful um, with airplanes or driving, just wrestling with how does one maintain a certain kind of holiness and moral commitment in the midst of a changing world. As Reverend Gates, for example, gets more popular, Reverend Gates, it seems, is influenced by record labels 
And so he starts recording, as I mentioned earlier, these 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 skits that are almost very similar to popular radio skits. Mm-hmm. Amos and Andy Whoa. kind of sounding skits that are very at times you listen to them um, and you're like, ooh, this is this is this really plays into a lot of racial stereotypes of the era. Reverend Gates okay. tries his tries his hand at that. There are other uh, um, examples of, of shifts. There's another uh, preacher who decides to, to record a sermon series. So in order, so people, they wanted to hear everything, they'd have to buy multiple records. Ah, so he does, he, does, he does a sermon series called Diamond Express Train to Hell. And, and every time you buy one record, you, the record comes as a small piece of a map of a puzzle that puts together the Diamond Express train to hell. Wow. And so it's just, brilliant. And so every time you buy one, you get a new, yeah, it's just a new marketing strategy, right? And so you end up having uh, these sorts of differences and sorts of things coming into play. Wow. Um, and and sometimes the record advertisements will show that. Lerone Martin, I have to ask is there any recording of these preachers on phonographs? Uh, is there a rarity? Is there a missing recording that is still out there? Maybe. Well, I would love. I don't think there was any produced of the chain store sermon in terms of vinyl. Right. But so that sermon, that sermon, that sermon is available on iTunes. Okay. I'm not quite sure how how they did that, but that sermon is available for iTunes. You can hear the conversation, wow. and also the other side is part two, which is the fascinating acapella song by four four gentlemen uh telling the story well i can't wait to hear that i'm glad it's been preserved and and speaking of rarities we didn't talk about this but were there recordings on cylinder even before 78s were there any preachers that that are archived on cylinder that we could find Yes, this this would be, in my opinion, this would be a wonderful research project because so much of the energy about religious broadcasting has been into radio. Um, when I was when I was researching my book, I did find evidence of earlier preachers who were recording in the early 20th century. I don't know if they were on cylinder, but early 20th century, especially among white ethnic groups. So you imagine if you're coming to the U.S. and you're German or you're Scandinavian. And so there were a number of record labels who reached out to white ethnic preachers, Scandinavians, Germans and others who would then record sermons in their native language for the sort of American diaspora, if you will. And that is something that I think would be a phenomenal research project for someone to take up. Oh, we'll have to get on the rabbit yeah. hole and start, seek that out. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, Lerone Martin, Associate Professor in Religion and Politics at Washington University in St. Louis, author of the book Preaching on Wax, The Phonograph and the Shaping of Modern African-American Religion, out from New York University Press in 2014. Thank you so much for joining us today on Radio Survivor. We've had a great time. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Radio Survivor. Thanks again to Jennifer Waits for producing today's episode. If you'd like to listen to the unabridged, uncut, uh, slightly longer version, it's available on the internet at radiosurvivor.com or anywhere where you get your podcasts. On behalf of everyone at the Radio Survivor team, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you again next week. You can walk up to that chainsaw, Lord, in there you'll find a gate. As soon as you get your money spent, they'll ship it to another state. You better see ya. You better see ya. You better see ya. They'll ruin you, sure as you're born. That true thing about the chainsaw, Lord, you'll find it to be true. 
No, they do not give you what to do, and they will not credit you. Now let me tell you people, oh, the best thing for this land, Lord, you better see all these chains over and serve your pitting man. You better see all these chains over, you better see all these chains over, you better see all these chains over, it'll ruin you. Oh, Lord.